So welcome to the Praxis Behind the Obscure podcast. And today I have a very special guest. I have Phil Hine, who uh, a lot of people find out, you know, going through the chaos magic route. Uh, he's one of the first authors you come across, uh, you know, looking into that. But he sort of took in a different direction, as far as I've heard, uh, very focused on Tantra these days. So thought it'd be very interesting to have him on and discuss a little bit about his background and um also what really interests me is sort of the different experiences and how uh perhaps your perspective and your practice has changed over the course of decades right because a lot of people are really just getting into this perhaps or could be a year five years but you know you're a uh, veteran in this game so to speak so uh (laughs) (laughs) so welcome uh welcome to the podcast and maybe you can kind of give a brief introduction and um sort of how you got into the occult and uh, that whole process. Okay, well, thanks for having me on, Ryan. Uh, I'll do my best. How did I get into the occult? Mm-hmm. Well, initially, I thought the occult was all rubbish. <laughs> I had no no interest in it whatsoever. Uh, but when I was about 16, I started reading Young. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you like, the, the trigger moment for me, which which actually kind of started to change my mind about the occult was... I was sitting in the school library reading a, um, an old magazine series called Man, Myth and Magic. I don't know if you've come across it. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, you know, 70s part page, uh, coloured magazine thing. Um, I make no bones about this. I was looking for nude pictures of witches. <laughs> as, as you do when you're 16, you know? Sure. Um, and I came across a, a picture by Austin Osman Spare. Mm. And I can't remember what the picture was, actually, mm. uh, but it somehow resonated with the, the Jungian material I've been reading. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, maybe there's something to this occult stuff after all, you know. Mm. Um, and from there, I, I basically went to my local library and read everything I could, mm. which wasn't, a, um, you know, a very sophisticated selection. So I read a lot of uh, spiritualist material, quite mm-hmm. a lot of the um, theosophical works which were available. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, I read Madame Blavatsky's Secret Doctrine in all three volumes at the age of 17 and was a bit blown away by it. <laughs> you know, yeah. I kind of thought, wow, if, if this is what these guys were on about in 1875, where will they be now? Mm. Um and then I, I uh, moved to a northern town called Huddersfield to do a, deg- uh, a, deg- a joint honours degree in psychology. Um, and it was whilst I was doing my degree, I actually met some, you know, if, if you like, working occultists rather mm. than people who'd actually just read a few books. Um, some of those people were, were members of a Kabbalistic a magical order called the Order of the Cubic Stone. Hmm. I don't think it's around anymore. But this was 1978. And uh, one of the things that order did was they, they ran, if you like, introductory courses mm-hmm. for probationers. And the idea was that um, you wrote off, they sent you lessons and they kind of like monitored you and mentored you through the lesson plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they liked how you'd got on through the lessons and they invited you to join the order. Mm. So I did this uh, probationer course, which was like, you know, basic sort of like Kabbalistic magic, you know, drawing trees for life, 
-hmm. doing things like the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, middle pillar, can I, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I was um, hanging around this, this place in Leeds called the Sorcerer's Apprentice, mm. which was where I, I first discovered the, the early works of Peter Carroll and, and Ray Sherwin. So at the same time I was doing this um, Kabbalistic magic, if you like, I was also I'd also picked up a very early edition of Lee Banul and Ray Sherwin's um, Book of Results. So I was I was starting to kind of like noodle around with sigils. Mm -hmm. The people, uh, the guy mentoring me from the Order of the Cubic Stone, really didn't like that. He, he said <laughs> yeah, doing doing sigil magic was dangerous, you know, and I was kind of like, yeah. <laughs> whatever dude you know right uh he also didn't like me spelling magic with the k because the the order of the cubic stone were not really into crowley mm. uh, I, I you know i could see even at that stage i wasn't going to probably not going to get invited into the order proper <laughs> and the third um of my developing interest was was the cthulhu mythos because i was really into hp lovecraft mm. So I, I started to do some some kind of very early exploratory, um, if you like, rituals, uh, mostly self-designed um, to invoke Cthulhu and things like that. Mm. So, you know, and, and this was pretty much on my own, um, which was a, a good and a bad thing. There was nobody to go, oh, you can't do that sort of thing. You know, I, I had nobody to, virtually nobody to talk to. So I just went ahead and started experimenting. Um, and then when I moved back to my hometown after completing the degree, um, I hooked up with some witches and became, an, um, you know, did the whole year and a day thing. Mm -hmm. uh, then they initiated me into their coven and then promptly turned around and said, oh, we've made a mistake. You're not suitable for magic. <laughs> and they, they, they basically kicked me out, you know. Um, Seems like that's a, that's kind of a trend, right? Like you get involved in a group, and then it's uh, well, hey, yeah, you shouldn't be doing well, that. Maybe you don't belong here. <laughs> it was it was it was fairly shocking. I mean, I was only twenty one, and I was kind of like obsessed with magic. So hearing that I wasn't suitable was a bit of a shock. Hmm. Uh, and I coped with it by um, signing up to go and work on a kibbutz for, for eight months. Hmm. Um which I did, and I continued doing bits of Kabbalistic magic whilst I was in Israel. Um, I think I did uh, Pete Carroll's Libra MMM, you know, the, the training course for the IOT, whilst, mm -hmm. again, whilst I was in Israel. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of continually noodling about and experimenting, if you like, with, with various things. Um, and then when I came back from Israel in 1982, I just thought I'm going to give magic a rest, you know, mm. just going to meditate if that, just kick back, take it easy. <laughs> uh, and whilst I wasn't, whilst I was in that kind of like meditative space, I started to have recurring dreams about meeting Carly, mm. which was interesting because I, you know, I, I knew something about the goddess Carly, but I had no real interest in, if, if you like, in, in Indian religion. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd, I'd read Kenneth Grant books, so I was, I was probably kind of like vaguely familiar with the goddess, but she started turning up in my dreams and I had this, you know, repeating dream time and time again. 
of, of kind of like meeting in a, in a cremation ground, hmm. which was interesting. Um, and that's kind of where the roots of my interest in Tantra came from. Hmm. Very interesting. So you, from there, you sort of decided to, you took that as a sign to kind of start studying Tantra and um, looking well, more to that and the, moving the a little bit away was, from the uh, magic stuff. Well, not really, because the problem was in 1982, there wasn't actually a great deal of information available about Tantra. Mm. I mean, there was a lot of that kind of uh, sexual secrets type stuff, which <laughs> I didn't think was actually that interesting. Uh, because another factor was I was I was trying to come to terms with my sexual orientation, and a lot of that stuff was quite, uh, if not blatantly homophobic, then at least you know kind of like based on old old kind of fashion stereotypes. So I wasn't really attracted to all that kind of like sex tantra stuff that was becoming so popular then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to do rituals, and it actually took me about five years, I think, uh, before I met anybody else who was. <clears throat> excuse me, before I met anybody else who was actually um, a practitioner of, of some form of Tantra, albeit a kind of westernized Tantra. And that was when I moved to Leeds. Mm-hmm. So I'd spent a few years, uh, I, I did some training in, in Nottingham as a psychiatric nurse. Um, whilst I was in Nottingham, I, I hooked up with this group who were kind of like mixing um magical techniques with with drama and I did some work with them that was very interesting um gave me a, a very strong interest in in looking at theatrical techniques and and drama techniques for for bringing into magical ritual um I then moved to York to pursue a a, a second degree this time in occupational therapy um kind of hooked back up with some of the Wiccans I'd met in the in the late seventies and early eighties, and mm-hmm. got in, more involved in in various witch and witch covens, mm-hmm. um, and started doing more sort of if you like more discordian magic if you like. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like wicker with with kind of twinges of of chaos and discordia. Mm-hmm. So if if we fast forward to I think about nineteen eighty six. Um, I moved to Leeds, which was a kind of chaos magic central in those days. Mm. Um, I got involved with the local chaos scene. So already that by that time, I've got an interest in chaos magic, Catholic stuff, if you like, mm-hmm. um, and Tantra. Mm. So they're all in place by 1986. Mm. And I kind of like bounce between wherever my you know, interest took me at the time. I got my fingers into a lot of different pies. Mm-hmm. I also started editing a pagan magazine with an old friend of mine, Rodney Orpheus, and I'll talk more about that later because we're doing a book, uh, which is basically an anthology of, of the best of, of that magazine. Oh, great. That sounds interesting. He, uh, I believe he has a, some books. Uh, is he the author of the... Um... Uh, I think it's called The Magic of Aleister Crowley, or I forgot exactly, but I think uh, he had some, I, I think some... so. You'd have to look it up. I'm not kind of very strong on Crowley myself. I mean, you know, obviously mm-hmm. I've read mm-hmm. a lot of Crowley. But uh, yeah, and I think he did a book called Abrahadabra. Oh, right. That's the one I'm thinking of. That's what I was thinking yeah. of. But, mm-hmm. you know, when we met, this this was about 1987, something like that. Mm-hmm. So, that, you know, those, those books were in the future. Mm. 
very interesting. So you're part of, uh, you guys worked on this uh, uh, Pagan magazine together. Um, yeah, Pagan, Pagan News. It, we, we started it in 1988 mm-hmm. uh, and it ran till 1992 uh, with, with various breaks. But uh, for the first two years we were doing, it was virtually monthly. So we were doing a copy every three weeks. Mm. Okay. And, you know, a lot of some, a fair number of people who were kind of like well known at the time or not very well known, who've since become magical authors were kind of featured in in early issues of the magazine. Mm-hmm. So people like, do you know Stephen Mace? I'm not familiar. Okay, Don't very interesting, very interesting mm-hmm. magical author. He's written mm-hmm. a number of books now, but he started off with us uh, doing a series of what we call Letter from America. So he was kind of reporting on the magical scene in America for us. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, we can talk about that more, more later, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I, again, I just want to stress that I was kind of like zooming around, doing whatever took my fancy, mm-hmm. going in, 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 if you like, in, in several magical directions at once. Right, sure. Sounds like you went through a lot of different uh, groups and different areas of study. And I'm kind of curious, since you you know you're going through the tantra stuff, you're going through chaos magic. Did you see the, these things as being um, complementary, or did you see them as like totally different reality tunnels? Or did you ever were you like battling between I'm, I'm I lean more towards this one, and maybe I'm wasting my time, you know, studying well, this. Well, let, let me think about that. Um... Mm-hmm. I, I think I saw them as, as, if you like, distinct areas of practice, but I didn't. I think to a large extent, I was, I was kind of, I was involved in a, in a, in a MUCOS at the time. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that particular group. It was, a, if you like, an East-West Tantric Order. Mm, okay. Um, set up by a guy called Mike McGee, or Lochranath, as he's known in the magical community, who mm-hmm. was a, who was a, been translating tantric texts since the, I think, late 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and this mad kind of like white sadhu uh, guy called Dadaji. Mm-hmm. Um, and Amukas was kind of like a, a fusion of, of Western magic and, and, and tantric and Indian ideas. Oh, so I was, and I was working through their grade papers and I was a member of a small group in Leeds that was doing that. But as I say, at the same time, I was involved with the Esoteric Order of Dagon, you know, the, the Cthulhu Magic Fanciers. Uh-huh. Um, I had my own small chaos group at the time. And I think at some point I might have even been running a Wiccan coven. So uh-huh. I was doing lots of things. Um, I, th- I think my early involvement with Wicca uh, brought out a really strong um, devotion for goddesses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that kind of like wasn't as strong for, for, for some periods as, as another, but I think it was my, my devotional um, attachment to goddesses that eventually led me away from chaos magic and back to Tantra. Mm. Because I, I think what happened was that I, rather than suddenly deciding that I wanted to focus on Tantra, I think it was a shift in perspective because I, I came to think, well, you know, I've been doing these rituals and these exercises, but they're largely based on, on 
you know, Western understandings of, say, what ritual is. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't really dived into the underlying philosophy behind these uh, rituals, if you like. Which I increasingly, as I as I got through the nineties, I began to see as a limitation. Mm. So by 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 the time I'd, I'd finished, um, let me think. I, I wrote various versions of condensed chaos, but I think by by the time uh, Falcon published the one the the, the kind of like the first paperback edition in nineteen ninety five, I was starting to thing I want to concentrate on Tantra. I want to, you know, if you like, do a deep dive into the underlying philosophy. Um, just And rather than seeing it as a kind of like, from a Western ritual perspective, you know, I, I want to understand what, if you like, what Tantrics thought about the, the underlying, if you like, theology behind their ritual work. You know what? What powered it? What What are their assumptions? And I began to see that um, the approach I wanted to take it take was that it was entirely different um, to Western ideas about magic. So I started mm. to concentrate on the differences rather than the similarities. Okay, very interesting. And I, you, started... I, you know, I started to read more of the, if you like, the the theory underpin, underpinning uh, these rituals and techniques and. Really, that discovered uh, that quest, if you like, uh, opened me up to a whole new world. Oh, very interesting. Um, and so it was around that time that you sort of started uh, more fo focusing on Tantra and studying it. And Tantra itself, I mean, you have Tibetan Tantra, you have you know Hindu, um, different different traditions of Tantra, like the Shiva, um, the Shiva tradition. What what uh, I mean, I'm sure you're jumping in there. There's like a bunch of different tantra is a pretty vast subject, right? It's a huge so, subject, yeah. It's a yeah, huge subject. And, right. Yeah, I, I decided to concentrate on the, if you like, on the the Shiva traditions, mm -hmm. uh, largely because I had several friends who were very, um, if you like, adept in in translating the primary texts, which mm. is something you have to get to grips with. Um, I think I wasn't so much interested in the Tibetan Buddhist material because I wasn't actually that bothered about Buddhism, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, I have to I have to know a little bit about Buddhism in my readings of, of uh, Indian religion and philosophy, but I wasn't actually attracted to Buddhism. So mm -hmm. I think that's one reason why I've, I've never I've never I've done a little bit in in the Tibetan direction in in terms of reading texts. But uh, I was never really attracted to that kind of like mode of working. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've stayed more or less within the Shaiva tradition, which is, you know, in itself a huge, a huge tradition spanning, what, a couple of thousand years, you know? Sure. What are the main, what are the main traditions in uh, uh, Indian Tantra? So there's the Shaiva tradition. Um, are there, there are a few main branches or? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's hugely complicated. But basically, um, what we now think of as, as the tantric traditions emerged out of Shaivism. Mm -hmm. uh, not everybody agrees with that, but there's, there's a huge, um, ever-increasing body of scholarship uh, that attests to the, to the origins of, of what we now call the tantric traditions emerging out of Shaivism starting around about the 5th century AD. Mm, okay. 
and then just pr proliferating. So, you know, the, there's, there's um, a whole series of, if you like, tr traditions and lineages that emerge out of Shaivism. Uh, and it gets hugely complicated. <laughs> I, 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 you know, that's, a, that's the best way to describe it in, in short order. Uh, but the tradition that I was initiated in, that I, I do most of my work in, is called the Sri Vidya tradition. Okay. And it's it's centered around the goddess Lalita. Mm -hmm. uh, she's the goddess. Lalita can be translated as the playful. Mm, interesting. Um, and she's like, if you like, the, the central deity in, in the tradition, she's more important than, than Shiva, for example. Mm, very interesting. We, and we, the tradition... Go on, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm curious. So, yeah, so uh, just to kind of backtrack a little bit, when you started doing this dive into Tantra, as you mentioned, you had um, friends of yours that were translating some uh, some materials and you got drawn into this tradition. Were there specific um, uh, ideas or concepts or practices that really sort of, uh, you know, in the beginning that really drew you in, that really sort of, you, 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 uh, you yeah, I, th I think so. One of the big emphases is on, is on rooting your practice in your everyday experience. Mm. Now, you know, I, prior to that, I'd been kind of like used to the a, a very Western approach to doing magic, which is it's it's kind of compartmentalized from your everyday experience. Mm -hmm. You know, you have this idea of there's the magical world, which is all woo, and then there's the <laughs> ordinary world, which is kind of like, Egh, you know, and there's <laughs> a kind of break between the two. And a, a core idea in, in a great deal of Tantra is no, you know, you, you, you do your work and it's all about, uh, if you like, making the everyday sacred or finding the sacred in, in the ordinary. Mm -hmm. And that really appealed to me. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that makes you know, a lot of sense. Rather than this kind of like disparagement of the of the normal world that you get in a lot of um, Western magic, up until fairly recently, mm. um, you know, Tantra Focus uses you on your everyday experience. Sure, sure. Like finding the sacred in, in the ordinary, you know, or seeing that there's no difference between the two. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that really appealed to me. Also, I just love a lot of the devotional material that's written mm -hmm. you know uh I, I i think i'm quite a devotion despite my you know stuff on chaos magic i think i'm quite a, um, a religious and devotional person and I, mm -hmm. I increasingly um found myself being, being drawn to that vast body of devotional writing oh very interesting um Tantra itself, ultimately, as you're, you're talking about goddesses and devotion, uh, are there different schools? Are there, um, what I basically want to ask you is that there's like non-dual Tantra, and is there other schools where they view, you know, they're different, um, we said yeah, ontological views are different? Yeah, there's non-dual Tantra and, and there's dualist Tantra. A okay. lot of the early schools are kind of like very dualist mm -hmm. um, in, their, in their philosophy, the, the non-dual schools start to come in around about the 10th century. Mm. Um, you know, I, there's a great deal of focus on those schools because, of course, they're, they're deeply philosophical. Uh, a lot of the earlier material isn't. It's, it's very much oriented towards, you know, um, 
doing dubious rituals in cremation grounds with ghosts and goblins and and yaginis, you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's uh very mortuary focused if you like but the the later non-dual schools mm-hmm. um although they did a certain amount of that uh they kind of like moved away from it mm-hmm. and in doing so they they if you, if you like simplified and aestheticized a lot of the practices hmm so you know, whereas in a in a in an early chantry you might get um, you know you have to go out into the cremation ground and cover yourself with the, the ashes of the dead and you know wear loads of skull skulls and do a long ritual involving corpses. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the later chantras, you get this idea that well, why not just meditate on the open sky, or on mm-hmm. music, or on the feeling that arises in you when you see a friend that you haven't seen for years. Mm, interesting. So sort of a shift of a more inward. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it was partly done to make it more accessible to people. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and that was very successful and it became, you know, very popular because it was more accessible. You didn't have to become an ascetic as you happens a lot in the, in the earlier phases of Tantra, you know, you didn't have right. to give up uh, being a householder. You could just, do these exercises right right that seems like something in the eastern tradition um you know you have like the vedas and the upanishads and then you know later on you have tantra you have vedanta you have these sort of i guess you would say different it's almost like i don't know if you'd want to call them updates they don't necessarily fully deny the past but it's sort of a new interpretation a new uh maybe like a new software right like you get an iphone 8 then the 9 then the 10 you know, think, it's sort of you see these gradual developments. Yeah, seems. I think that's that's quite a good analogy, actually. On um, on what how they tended to do it is to say, okay, this um, you get these hierarchies of values. And um, you know, in the in, we have this idea in the West of the left hand and the right hand path, mm-hmm. and they're kind of like opposite to each other. Um, you that doesn't tend to pertain in tantra very much. You have the idea that yeah, there's this. Um, stuff that belongs to this particular group of traditions and it's okay but ours is a higher tradition Mm -hmm. it's it's kind of like an extra level if you like a higher degree Mm -hmm. Uh, and as the different traditions evolve they kind of say okay well we're based on this stuff but ours is better you know Mm. some of the some of the late traditions uh getting into the 12th or 13th century are saying oh well there's this tradition and there's that tradition that they're okay, but um, you know, if you interpret their teachings in the right way, you can, you can see they conform with us, but our tradition is better. Mm. Uh, the, some, some of the later uh, Kala traditions say that they're superior to the Tantras. Oh, interesting. Hmm. So and you, so, you, get the, you get these these hierarchies of revelation. Right. Um, some, some of these traditions accept if you like the Vedas, mm-hmm. and some of them don't. Or they say, well, the Vedas are okay for everyday people, but for the adepts, you know, mm-hmm. um, the only way to become truly liberated is to take Shaiva initiation and do Shaiva rituals. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. Um, and ultimately, Tantra, is, is that sort of the, is it to be considered sort of the household you know, the solo practitioner, the household practice versus, you know, back back before where you had to go through 
the Brahmins and the priest cast, you know, different castes and stuff like that um, considered sort no, of... This, we, we, uh, we have evidence that there was a great deal of, um, if you like, public practice. Uh -huh. the, the biggest, one of the first traditions to emerge is the Shaiva Siddhanta. Uh, that kicks off, I think, about the 5th, 5th 6th century, something like that. That was very public-facing. Mm -hmm. So you have Shaiva Siddhanta uh, teachers, Acharyas, installed in temples. Mm -hmm. They become uh, one thing that Shaiva Siddhanta did, which helped spread it right across the subcontinent, was to offer initiation to kings. Mm, okay. So uh, you, you get um, Acharyas who are, who are the gurus to kings, often several kings at once, and this spreads. Um, the popularity of, if, of the tradition, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, in the tantras, you find instructions about how to build temples, how to build cities. So there's clearly a public face to the religion. Mm -hmm. And then it's in these more, if you like, in the more esoteric traditions, um, there's more of an emphasis on smaller groups. Mm, very now, groups of devotees meeting to do their rites either in cremation grounds or in somebody's house so it, it's never really a, a kind of like a solo thing mm, okay i mean okay. obviously there are solo practitioners but it you know we have a, a great deal of evidence that the that the if you like public groups uh, and some esoteric groups mm -hmm. okay so interesting. It, yeah go on um yeah very interesting um, well, one thing that really, you know, ever since I was young, I've had, I've been through all these psychedelic experiences. I got heavy into meditation and I've always been drawn towards the, uh, sort of this pranayama, you know, the Kundalini Kriya yoga, yeah. these sort of things. And these do, or do these all, all ultimately stem originally out of this, uh, out of, you know, Tantra itself. Yeah. Um, the, the whole concept of Kundalini, which, you know, takes uh, several centuries to develop into something even vaguely familiar to, to what we know in the West. Mm. Uh, I think it's been pretty well established that emerges out of Shaiva Siddhanta. Mm, okay. That's where we get the first text. Uh, talking about these, these internal practices, um, this is where the whole concept of chakras comes from. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've, in the last couple of years, I've done a whole series of booklets on the early history of chakras it you know starting off in india and coming into the west but again we can talk about that later if you like yeah that sounds interesting i mean it's if you go to any sort of new age bookstore you see this uh i don't i guess it would be a western representation or perhaps a reinterpretation of uh you know what chakras uh, are and, you I, know. I sometimes say to people they are the only actual similarity between western and new age models of chakras and Indian ones, at least the classical ones, is the word chakra. <laughs> originally, um, the, these, 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 if you like, points in the body, mm -hmm. the first thing is um, there isn't one model of chakras. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's lots. They're, they're sometimes they're, they're text-specific or, or, or tradition-specific. Right, right. I've, I've got translations of texts where there's two or three you know, models of Tantra, each with different numbers and different uh, numbers of chakras and different locations. Mm -hmm. And unless I'm getting this completely wrong, mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. the, their original function was that they were used to seat as positions for visualizing deities in the body. Okay. Uh, and if you like working with those deities as, as embodied bodily processes. Mm, okay, very interesting. Rather than yeah. purely just energetic points, they were seen as sort of houses of deities, perhaps. Yeah, because the, the thing in India is you you know you don't they don't really have this idea of of deities kind of like floating up in heaven like we do. Right. You know, like Christian idea that you know if you want to worship a deity, they have to be somewhere. So you either install them uh -huh. um, in a physical representation. You know, you put them in a picture in a statue, build a temple around them, obviously, mm -hmm. or you stick them in your body. And <laughs> And again, that's something that uh, you see all the time, that idea developing through the tantras. Mm, okay, very interesting. Um, um, mm -hmm. What kind of, well, I'll, I'll talk about the, the chakra series later, if you like, and then we can get into the whole kind of specificity of how those ideas kind of went wrong, if you like, when Westerners started to get hold of them. Sure, so sort of, uh, um, sort of taken out of context, right? I mean, ultimately we're talking about you know, these practices, kundalini, chakras, tantra, which in itself, these are inherently, it's like a lineage and initiatory tradition. Is that correct? Yeah, to a certain extent. And the, huh? the problem with tantric texts, which I think a lot of people hadn't, which I certainly had mm -hmm. um, and still do have, is they're not written in the way that we expect books on magic to be. You know, mm -hmm. they're written for people who are, if you like, initiates of the tradition and have access to living teachers. So mm -hmm. they leave a lot of stuff out. And a lot of the stuff they do talk about is kind of enigmatic, to say the best. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's coded. Mm -hmm. um, so, they're, you know, they're by no means easy text to read. Sure, sure, sure. Are they well, also well, written? I think baffles a lot of people. You know, I mean, you read Sure, sure. What, what are they on about? Yeah, a lot of different cultural uh, contexts that are important to understand and worldviews. But uh, are, are they also even perhaps even written with like blinds or sort of, uh, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah I would you particularly find this with, with mantras because, man, I mean, mantras are deities basically in, in the tantric traditions. So if, mm. you, if you know a mantra, you're, you're literally speaking the deity in, into, if you like, in, into your bodied space. And hmm. um, the, the, the mantras are secret, so they tend to be encoded in, in a variety of ways. Interesting. Do, is there a big distinction between that and the Western invocation process or, or uh, practice? Um, let, let's say it's, it's rooted in a different philosophical idea about deities. Hmm. Okay. And we, in the West, we tend to think of... Um, Deities in as anthropomorphic figures, mm -hmm. you know, um, Athena looks like that, Mercury looks like that, that's who they are, you know. Um, mm -hmm. In Tantra, deities are, if well, for want of a better word, the, they're, they're anthropomorphic representations are just that, they're just representations. That's not who they are. If you like, mm -hmm. they're gateways that allow us to, to um, interact with them. Mm -hmm. and the form of a deity, the sound form of the deity, is usually thought of as, as a higher, if you like, inst instantiation of the deity. Mm. 
as is the yantric form of the deity, which is the, the deity and all its attendant um, subsidiary, you know, deities arrayed around it in a, in a graphical representation. Mm -hmm. Oh, very interesting. So you, you, uh, you get these texts where you say, well, you know, you can worship the goddess in a feminine form, in a masculine form, or in a universal form, which is not gendered and at all, you know. Right, right, right. That's what's very interesting is that... And gender uh, only operates up to a certain level, if you like, of, of the uh, esoteric hierarchy. Mm. And beyond that, it's like meaningless. Sure, it has its it has its place until you have to move on beyond it, basically. Yeah, but it's it's a, it's a kind of like if you like a gateway, mm -hmm. but it's it's yeah. not it's not the goddess in a, in a if you like ultimate form. Um, you mm -hmm. could say that that's the goddess that resides in your heart as a feeling. Mm, okay, okay. I know that um, the interplay between Shiva and Shakti that's quite that's pretty much uh, that's sort of one of the core concepts, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So is is that seen as a gender, like a dualistic two parts coming together to a whole or um um what you get in a lot in a, particularly a lot of the non-dual texts is this idea that Shiva and Shakti can't be separated. Mm. They're like the they're like the the heat and fire of a flame, you know? Mm -hmm. they, they are actually one. Mm -hmm. So this this whole kind of like there's a tendency in the West to see those two figures, yeah, as, as gendered. You mm -hmm. do find that in some of the later traditions, particularly where they've, they've mixed up elements with, with, with other systems. But in the non-dual traditions, Shiva and Shakti are, are ultimately one thing, you know? Shiva Shakti. Okay. Oh, that's a good way. Uh, so, okay, sometimes like you get this idea that um, the goddess is superior to Sh Shiva or Shiva <laughs> superior to the goddess in, in the literature, you know? But again... Uh -huh that's a stage that you can go through. And I think you, the idea is you're supposed to develop your own uh, ideas about that. Mm, okay, okay. Yeah, sometimes you see it uh, even hyphenated, like Shiva Shakti as yeah. one, you know, one. I think that's that sounds, yeah. um, but it, sounds it, accurate. Then. Mm -hmm. It depends on the system. It depends on the text. and uh, It depends where you are in relation to that system and, and relation to that text, you know. Uh, I like goddesses, so I'm quite happy seeing uh for example lolita as as everything mm, okay. okay um she's she's if you like the entirety of my experience and the, mm. the whole point as as i see it of my practice is to dissolve that distinction between me and her or between me and everything else in in my experience if that makes sense oh yeah makes total sense um uh you mentioned earlier that you, when you're meditating, you had visions or experiences with Kali, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, maybe you can share a little bit about that. So what wh what is Kali's role? We're talking about Shiva and Shakti. What What is Kali's role in Tantra? And is that is there a different line or lineage? Is that a different um, strand yeah, I mean, there's, of Tantra? There's, or? there's a whole class of texts which uh -huh. are, are called Kali texts. And they see, and, and there's entire traditions where, where Kali is the supreme goddess. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them, we don't have all of their texts. Well, we, we only have a few of their texts translated. Mm -hmm. They're very interesting. Uh, but the, the, the tantric Kali is not 
kind of like the the if you like the popular Carly mm. that you get in in a lot of um, if if you like in, in contemporary Hindu worship. She's she's seen as a transcendent goddess. You know, she is the the ultimate goddess of those systems. Mm, okay, okay. I'm actually uh, reading through a book that you wrote one of the reviews on the little uh, blurbs okay. on well, the Kali Kola. Yeah, yeah, Manual of Tantric Magic by uh, Jan Fries. It's a very, mm -hmm. very good so far. Very long text, but uh, really, really enjoying that one so far. And it does go a little bit through uh, um, sort of the history. Of the, like the, I'm still in the beginning of the book, so it's still covering a lot of the uh, preliminary history and things along those lines. But it, it's, it's a good book for its time, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. I think the ironic thing is he doesn't actually have a lot to say about the Carlicula as, as a tradition. Uh -huh. I think at the time he was writing it, very little was known. Mm. Again, the problem is a lot of tantric texts have not been translated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there's a friend of mine, Dr. Mark Zygotsky. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he he spent 20 years translating uh, a, a text of the uh, Kabjika tradition, which is a very important goddess tradition from the 11th century. Mm -hmm. uh, and he he put that book out, and it was like fourteen huge volumes, and he spent twenty years translating it. You know, uh, and that kind of is another thing to bear in mind. A, a lot of tantric texts which get referred to, either we don't have them, or there hasn't been a critical edition produced of them. Mm. Okay, interesting. so again, that, that that's a, a if, if you like a problem, but uh, fortunately. And this is something that I didn't have access to in, in the 80s, for example. There's a vast body of, of, of scholarship now about Tantra. It's seen as a legitimate mm -hmm. uh, pursuit of scholars, which it didn't always. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of hard for me to, as a non-academic to keep up with, with that material because there's, there's such a lot of uh, material coming out all the time. Okay, so to go back, uh, we were talking about uh, there, you know, you're mentioning that there's a lack of uh, translations for a lot of these texts. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and it, it, it kind of helps if you can read Sanskrit, which I can't. But fortunately, <laughs> as, I, as I say, I have, I have friends who are you know, very good scholars. Okay, that's really good. I'm they sure that sometimes helps. slip me the occasional rough translation, you know. Mm -hmm. So if one, is to, if one is to dive deep into Tantra, then uh, pretty much uh, learning some Sanskrit would be advisable, perhaps. Uh, if, if you, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's necessary mm -hmm. um, altogether. If, if you're going to kind of like really go into it, then yeah. I mm -hmm. mean, I never really had the chance to do it. And nowadays, the, the, all the, pretty much all the Sanskrit courses are kind of expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, but I kind of wish I had done it when um, a few years ago, it would have made my life easier. But I, I just tend to be a bit lazy and rely on my mates, you know? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Sure, sure, sure. Well, if you have people that are, uh, you know, linguists or scholars or experts in yeah, Sanskrit. Yeah, they're scholars, sure. you know? Right, right. They spent perhaps their life studying the subject. I mean, it is nice to, uh, you know, enjoy the benefits of that because yeah, there are yeah. some people who are better at, um, you know, the linguistical side of things, and yeah, that 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 uh, that can be very big beneficial for us. You know, mm. practitioners. Well, you know, if somebody is out there contemplating uh, getting seriously interested in tantra, then I would actually recommend it. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, if you can find an online course in, in Sanskrit, it is going to pay you back. Okay. Do you think a Westerner can really get immersed in Tantra, the practices um, uh, overall without, you know, going through a lineage or a guru or going to India or anything along those lines? Can, can one? Yes, uh... I, I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of very careful about this. Okay. Uh, I, I call my practice a, a hybridized practice. Okay. You know, because I am, I am a Westerner, you know, that is my background. Uh, I'm always going to be interpreted, however much I try and, and get my head around, if you like, tantric philosophy or theology, uh-huh. I'm still coming at it from a Western perspective. So I'm very conscious that I'm not, if you like, doing a, a pure practice. My, mm-hmm. my practice is, is hybridized. You know, it, that's how I kind of see it. Uh, yeah. I think it is possible uh i think it does take time mm, okay okay yeah. mm-hmm. um I've, I've been doing it now for well let's say since about 19 i you know i had my mucus initiation in 1987 so if you, if you take that as my starting point i've been i've been uh doing things since since 1987. Um, okay and you know, I still think of myself as a beginner. Okay, you yeah. Know, a, a lot of the, <laughs> the practical work I do is is very light. You know, it's uh-huh. very gentle. I, I don't do huge long rituals, for example, mm-hmm. or, or very occasionally. Um, but yeah, I think it is possible. But you have to be prepared to, uh, if you like, drop some preconceptions and do a lot of reading. Uh, mm. And you know the other problem is it's 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 hard to find a teacher. Sure. I, I you know I, I had a five year gap between my Carly vision and actually finding somebody who had experience uh, in a tantric lineage and was prepared to take me on as a student as on a one to one basis. Mm-hmm. That um, that's I think a, um, a feature of of our modern you know Zoom age. Is there are now people who understand this material very well? They're scholar practitioners, mm-hmm. uh, people like Christopher Tompkins or Christopher Wallace, and they do online courses in if you mm. like, introductions to tantric practice, which are very good. And you know, I've, I've done a few okay. of them. Um, but again, you know, I, I feel immensely privileged in that I did find somebody who was willing to, who'd actually done. Um, the kind of practices that I was, if you like, taught to do, who was willing to do that on a one-to-one basis. And I think that's very, very hard. Mm. Uh, you, you know, e- even in India nowadays, you know, m- most uh, of the kind of like popular teachers take on dozens of students at once. It's very, very difficult to find somebody who will sit down with you, you know, in your own town, Mm. And you can have that very in, intense one-to-one relationship with. So I was very lucky. Mm. Okay. Then, yeah. It sounds like you, uh, you hit the jackpot in that regard, right? Having an actual yeah, yeah. person to sit down with, but, um, mm-hmm. um, but I, th- I think it is possible, but it, it can take a long time. I mean, my, my teacher said to me, you'll, it will be 10 years before you start to really understand what you're doing. And it was pretty much right, you know. That's a, uh, yeah, I mean, it's sort of... So that's, a, that's the, the kind of commitment we're talking about, you know. Yeah, are you really into this or not, you know, because 10 years later, you're going to start to get it, yeah. That'll, uh, that'll sort of screen out the dabblers, I suppose, huh? 
Well, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah. Uh, I I used to get people say to me, "Oh, well, I'm interested," you know, blah blah blah, and I say, "Okay, well, you know, try this and try that," and they'd go, "Oh, it doesn't really work for me," you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I go, "Yeah, why? Whatever, you know. We're not, we're not under an obligation to make things easy for people. It is, sure. you know, even with the wealth of um, scholarly texts that are around nowadays." I mean, even those in themselves are hard to read. You know, right. It takes you time to... You know, I, I don't know how much academic uh, literature you're familiar with, but often it's quite hard to read. And that's even sure. without the added, added uh, problem of trying to make sense of something that was written six centuries ago in Kerala, you know, and has been translated into English or French. Sure, sure. I mean, even if you're getting into preliminary yoga practices, like asana, sitting still... I mean, I think for a lot of people, just sitting still and breathing alone is a hard practice enough. You know, yeah. it's uh, yeah. it's uh, it frustrating. The impatience that's in, you know, your thoughts mm. are racing. I mean, that alone can be a long process. And um, yeah. speaking of yoga, is Tantra a part of yoga or is yoga Tantra? Because you, you're talking a lot about these different practices and about uh sort of the uh, uh, devotion to goddess, like a bhakti yoga um, mm-hmm. sort of thing? Uh, that's, that's a really interesting question because, yeah, I mean, this yoga is a big part of Tantra, but it's not kind of, it's not quite the same as, if you like, the uh, the yoga sutra yoga. Okay. You know, if you're familiar with, with Patanjali's yoga sutra, sure. Um, that's now seen as, if you like, the, the foundational text of, of, of yoga, but mm-hmm. well, it actually goes back, you know, quite a way before that, but mm-hmm. you know, potentially yoga sutra is a good benchmark, but uh, the tantrics developed their own forms of yoga, which were, if you like, not quite so, um, not quite, not so much about disciplining the body, but to, to opening up the body for new experiences. So, mm. you know, Rather than this idea that you have to, you know, close your eyes and, and stop thought, which is very much comes out of the, uh, you know, the Patanjali type yoga and, and later Hatha yoga. Uh, in Tantra, you get exercises where you open your eyes, for example, and mm-hmm. stop thought by just being aware of everything that's around you. Mm, okay. Which very is kind of a very different approach when you think about it. Or you get these exercises where you you listen to a piece of music that you love and become lost in it. Mm. Okay, so it sounds or, a lot more. As, as I said earlier, mm-hmm. you know, you you meet somebody on the street that you haven't seen for say a few years, and and the joy that rises in your heart is is what you meditate on. Mm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it sounds it's a, a lot. Kind of, it's a very different mm-hmm. kind of like emphasis, you know, to a, a lot sure. of the, the yoga that gets taught in the West. But it, it certainly is a very important component. Interesting. Okay. I mean, again, the, the tantric yoga techniques, you know, go along with the, the, the meditations on, if you like, the, the meditations and the invocations of, of the deities of the chakras. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, very interesting. Um, that's a that's a totally different perspective than, uh, like you said, the yoga sutras of Patanjali and you know later approaches. Um, yeah, but on, on, yeah. you know, by the same token, there's a lot of stuff in in the yoga sutra that doesn't get as much attention. Mm-hmm. You know, like the 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 cities, the supernatural powers. Sure. 
you know, about a third of the Yoga Sutra is is about the, the acquisition of Siddhi. Mm. But again, it's 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 got edged out of the, if you like the yoga discourse, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very Which interesting. Which is a, you know, it's a whole topic in itself, I guess. You know, <laughs> uh, right. if you go on my blog, you'll see I've done a I did a, a lecture a couple of years ago, and I've uh, that I've extracted some sections out about the whole relationship between yoga and deception. Uh-huh. Which is all about how yoga cities were were viewed in the in the 19th century by uh, orientalists and theosophists and, and later by Crowley. Mm, okay, you have to check that blog out then. Sounds interesting. Yeah, because yeah, that's uh, HTTP unfolding.org, which is my blog, which is mostly me and occasionally other people. Okay, great. Um, yeah, yeah uh, there's a great um, most of my recent. Uh, work over the past 10 years is, is on a blog basically. Mm, good. Yeah, I've checked as well out as some, parts, some parts have crept into the new book, which again we can talk about in a while. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah, definitely a good site, which I'll include in the notes, uh, infolding.org. Um, yeah. Okay, I'm curious, uh, you know, what are your current practices that are there other practices that you do regularly or do you sort of? Is it sort of a go with the flow um, day, day um, to day? That it just changes day by day, or is there a regular staple of practice that at, you do? At the moment, with of course the whole Corona lockdown, mm-hmm. um, what I try and do every day is go for a walk. Mm-hmm. Okay, just just that. I, that I'm quite fortunate in, in that where I live in London, there's quite a few green spaces. Mm-hmm. So I'll go for a walk and I'll sit down and I'll meditate on the goddess Lolita mm-hmm. um, and just try and feel her present. Mm. You know, whether, whether it's in the, the wind I can feel on my skin or the smell of grass, you know, wet gra- grass or in the sounds that are around me. Um, and that's a, just a very simple practice that I try and do on a daily basis. Okay. Okay, that's, yeah, I like that. Definitely, I like that. Um, would that be a practice that you recommend to people who are, you know, perhaps there are a lot of listeners who uh, they hear this podcast, um, you know, they're, they're looking for a practice to do. Would, would you recommend that or are there simple? Uh, That's a very simple practice, but the, you know, the idea behind it is that the goddess resides in your heart. Mm. And, and again, this is an idea that came out in the later Cowler traditions of which Shrivyadura is one, and mm-hmm. is, that, is that your senses are deities, and it's through the 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 your your daily experience through your senses becomes an offering to the goddess. Mm, okay, and that's just a, a, a very simple thing you can you can you know um, once you understand the principles behind it, I think that's a, that's an excellent daily practice. Okay, and so, yeah. sometimes I'll be, I'll just be like walking along um, down a forest path and I just get into this kind of incredible sense of peace and calm, uh, which I think I need at the moment. I think we all need. <laughs> I think it's not the, just the, you. The, I think the, way uh, the, world is. Um, yeah, the whole world. <laughs> and, and it's, it's this, this, this sense of, of being enfolded within the goddess, you know, uh-huh. that she's everywhere and in everything, you know, including me, obviously. Okay. Um, um, and that's just a simple practice I try and do every day. Sometimes it kind of like sparks me into this 
um, incredible sense of peace and calm. And sometimes it doesn't, you know, but that's a simple practice. Okay, interesting. And it doesn't um, have to be a leader. You can do it with, with any, you know, data. You can do it with Western data, if you like. But yeah. as I say, the, the idea is very different. It's, you, you, you don't have to invoke um, the data into your heart. She's there because she's your heart, you know? Mm. And I think that's a, a big difference between, if you like, the Western idea of invocation, where you're starting out as yourself and you, you know, you draw something into you. Um, from a tantric perspective, they're already there. Mm, okay, so it's a whole different perspective. They, they are, they are kind of like um, within you as the, as if you like, the source of consciousness. Mm. And all the practices are ultimately the idea is to dissolve that that sense of a boundary between you and the ultimate source of consciousness if you like mm -hmm. okay you know, everything you know it all kind right. of like winds in on itself eventually gotcha gotcha um you mentioned like longer rituals are there in in the tantric tradition um in tantra in general or perhaps the the um you know the uh, strand of tantra that you are practicing are there practices of um you know pr uh, like magic or practical operations or is that not even uh no, a no, there's a great deal of tantric material mm -hmm. is um is about magical operations uh mm. it doesn't get as much emphasis because more people are interested in if you like the, the philosophical and the if you like the spiritual side of it but <laughs> a, actually a great deal of, of tantric material is, is about doing operations. In fact, um, Mike McGee, who's, who's a very old friend of mine, one, one of my translator buddies, um, has written a book which I produce called Yakshini Magic. It's mm. available on Amazon. Uh, you can find the link again on unfolding.org. Um, mm. What it is, it's, it's a look at a group of very old um, Indian nature spirits called Yakshinis. Mm -hmm. um, what Mike has done is, is translated a lot of uh, tantric material pertaining to these yakshinis and how you go about, well, it's not complete information, but there's, you kind of get the sense of um, how they can be invoked through different methods and what rewards you will get, uh, provided you don't upset them because they're kind of jealous, you know? Mm, okay. Uh, some of these texts say if, if you if you take a if you enter into a relationship with the Yakshini, then you don't have anything to do with women because they can be, you know, as I say, jealous. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a lot of tantric magic, which is about magic. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it is very much like the stuff you find in in early modern grimoires. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, magic to defeat an enemy, uh, mm -hmm. magic to attract somebody towards you, magic for divination. Mm -hmm. um, but as I say, it, it hasn't kind of like received as, as much attention as, as the more philosophical end of things. But it is it is there certainly. Right. Uh, okay. One, one of my favourites is is uh, is a ritual to catch elephants. And you have to <laughs> that sounds very practical, especially back in the day. I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. also we find we find historical records of. Um, tantric adepts who are kind of like in, in the court of a king uh, doing rituals to defeat an enemy. Hmm. And, and one, of, one of the things we know historically is that part of the, um, one of the attractions for a king taking a, a tantric initiation was invincibility in battle. 
Mm, very interesting. You know, oh. so the, the, there is this entire martial tradition, um, which which slots into the tantric tradition, and we know that that some of the um, some of the tantric skills, if you like, had their own armies. Mm. Uh, it, and you get this this whole phenomenon of armed yogis, you know, right up until the the nineteenth century, which is something else I've been, been doing research into. Yeah, it sounds very interesting. Yeah, I haven't heard much about that end of things. Um, is there is there so you know in Western magic you have the sort of theurgy and thaumaturgy. Is there do they see a distinction? Like, is it all part of one practice, one devotion, or do they see them as you know? these sort of practical uh, operations is completely separate or, you know. That's kind of tricky because quite often you'll, again, I mentioned these these power mantras through which you can call the goddess. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you'll get the same mantra uh, being used in a spell as it is uh -huh. in a more, if you like, uh, devotional approach. Mm -hmm. So there, there often isn't a difference. And of course, again, if you look into Indian history, you'll see that Tantrics are often quite um, odd figures, you know, they're kind of like revered and feared at the same time. Mm -hmm. oh, interesting. So, you know, and again, this, and again, you can see this in a lot of the early texts that talk about yoga, that yogis were revered, but they were also feared because they had the power to fuck you up for want of a better term, you know, if you piss them off. <laughs> Right, right, right. You know, it's not the image of uh, some long-haired guy in the grass with a yoga mat, per se. No, no, no that's, that's <laughs> if you like a modern, a modern construction. Sure. And, and this is, you know, this is something I found fascinating when I started to to research into um, armed yogis, uh -huh. which is a, a phenomenon we mostly encounter from about the 16th century onwards. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't so much the the research itself, but it was it was you know when I was talking to people about it, I said, "Oh, I'm doing this lecture on armed yogis," and they go, "What?" I said, "Yeah, you know, um, practitioners of yoga who acted as mercenaries for mm. kings," and like people were like freaked out because they had they, it ran so counter to their <laughs> ideas of of what yogis were, you know. Yeah, very interesting. I, I remember uh, when I was in um, uh, I think it was middle school. Uh, I had a friend who was Sikh. This is in California. And uh, I think it was his dad or his uncles. You know, it's it's part of their tradition where they walk around with swords. You know, that yeah. it's, uh, you know, it's not seen as, um, I mean, it's just part of their spiritual tradition to be mm -hmm. armed so and to be warriors. Well. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it's not the image of, <laughs> not, not uh, I don't know what you would say, the, uh, the sort of sublime, peaceful image that some people might have in their mind sometimes. No, but I, and again, this I think this is a, a, certainly a problem I encountered in in uh, when I was first starting to to look at tantra in depth. Was you have to get past, if you like, the the Western constructions of what this is all about. Uh huh. Because uh, you know, you you say you're into tantra, and people go, "Oh, sex." Right. You know, automatically, right? <laughs> automatically. You know, I, I, I was talking to, a, I remember talking to an American friend many years ago and he said, oh, what, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm, we're in this tantric group. He goes, oh, what's, you know, I wish I was in a tantric group. And I said, we're not <laughs> fucking each other, you know, that's all about that. Um, and yeah, you know, there are a lot of these preconceptions come out of the colonial period. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you have to kind of like, as much as you have to knock them down, I, I also became fascinated in, in how they arose. So sure. part of my, uh, if you like, scholarly uh, pseudo-academic writing is, is very much focused on um, how images of India crossed uh, into the West, how, well, particularly Indian magic and how they crossed into the West and how they kind of like gave rise to these stereotypes, you know? Sure, sure, sure. Early interpretations and uh, um, which is still with writing. Us yeah. Right, right. It didn't really fully change from what? What is this? The early or late nineteenth century, perhaps? Uh, everything from the late eighteenth century onwards. You know, period of the uh, the uh, East India Company onwards. Um, yeah. How how stereotypes about India kind of like became hardened. Um, so a, a lot of my, also my, my research work is, is concerned with how these ideas sort of come out, how we got these stereotypes in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, a... that's, that's, that's been a later develop for me as I've been more, become more interested in, in writing about odd corners of, of esoteric history, which is something I t- tended not, not to do, you know, in the first 20, 30 years because I was too busy writing about whatever idea passed into my head, you know, regardless of its provenance. Sure. Um, and uh, this is probably out of left field, but we're, we're talking all about Tantra here. You're early, you know, almost to backtrack <laughs> earlier in the conversation, uh, you know, with your involvement in chaos magic and Kabbalah and Western, Western esotericism, does that play yeah. any, any role at all in your worldview or practice? Or is it something that you would say, you know, it served a purpose at the time, but you've sort of moved on or discarded it? Um, yeah, but that has its problems as well, because, um, you know, I often find that when people are going on about that stuff on, on the, the web and I want to jump in and I think, I don't know what you're on about. <laughs> you know, I, 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 you know I, last year I actually went on a, on a beginner's intense making course Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really feel like felt like I was coming at it for the first time. And I think, yeah, I, I vaguely remember some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I, I did a tarot reading for my partner last week. Uh-huh. Uh, and I had to dig out um, a loose leaf binder that I started to write, I think, in 1985, mm-hmm. which had all my tarot notes in it. Because oh, I wow. literally have nothing, you know, nothing on my bookshelves that could help oh. me. Fortunately, I'd, I'd kept hold of this thing from 1985, which was my notes on the on the minor arcana and the court cards. Never mm. actually got round to doing the the major arcana, but it, it was helpful. So, yeah, in a sense, I have not so much left it behind, but because I've spent the last 20 years pretty much reading um, in depth a lot of Indian esoteric and ethnographic material. Um, I've, I've just kind of like defamiliarized myself with it. Okay. Okay. I mean, I, I, I don't even remember a lot of the stuff I wrote in the Chaos Magic, <laughs> which is why that book, doing that book, Heinz Varieties, was kind of useful because it actually forced me to go back and look at a lot of my early writing. Right. Got, speaking of, oh yeah, God, speaking of, yeah, your latest book, uh, Heinz Variety. I, I think that um, I haven't read it all yet. I've skimmed through it and I do plan on uh, studying each chapter because even with a quick glance through the book, 
I have yeah. to say that this format, I mean, <laughs> I mean, just looking, I really wish more books were written in this format. I mean, it does, of course, require decades of experiences and, you know, uh, practices yeah, yeah. and reflection and changing your mind, which, you know, people. Well, actually I, I wanted to do, a, if you can, like, um, not so much an anthology of stuff I really like, but mm -hmm. um, to try and show how my ideas in a particular sphere of uh, or genre, if you like, changed over time. Sure, I, I love that. I really Which, of course, I, I can do because I've got that, that huge body of writing. Um, to right. Have. It's, like, like, oh, it's, yeah. it's going to be interesting to actually to try and contextualize this. Mm -hmm. So I came up with the idea of let, let's do a little bit of autobiographical uh, reflection on, on how I got interested in a particular you know, direction. And then to say, okay, well, you know, this is what was happening in my life when I wrote this. This is this was is what was going on in my life. This is what was in my head, you know. Mm -hmm. This is how my ideas on this subject have changed. Mm -hmm. um, and then my partner Maria Strutt, she's an artist. She did she did the cover and she did the internal illustrations. Mm -hmm. Actually, the cover was a kind of a joint job because she did the original um, design and then I tweaked it in Photoshop. Uh huh. Oh, that's um, awesome. ha having had a background in, in in magazine production, you know, right. Um, right. So it was, and and my friend David Southwell, who who wrote the foreword, he's a quite an old friend of mine. So it was very much a, a team effort, but I'm I'm quite pleased with the result, and uh, so original Falcon. So that's fine. That's awesome. So is is that the same publisher? Oh, it is the same publisher as it your. It's the same publisher who you did condensed chaos, who brought out condensed chaos, right? Um, Prime chaos and the pseudonomicon. And there's, by the way, there's a, a there's an audio version of the um, of condensed chaos uh, just come come available recently, though I, I forget the publisher. Okay, maybe on Audible, probably available on Audible or something. Yeah, probably available on Audible. Okay. Um, and there's various, we've got various foreign translations of, of, uh, of various books in, in progress as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I could talk about the new stuff now. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. 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 The, okay. Well, the, the book I'm just doing at the moment is with my old friend, Rodney Orpheus. And it's like, if you like an, an anthology of, uh, the best articles we published in this um, occult magazine we used to do together uh, called Pagan News. Mm -hmm. um, no idea when it's going to be out. Okay. Uh, we think the title is going to be called Gillinquent Elementals. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, after one of the one of the humorous pieces we, we published, I think, in 1988 called uh, Gillinquent Elementals is Society to Blame. And mm -hmm. it was a kind of a skit on, you know, does your familiar, um, what does your familiar call itself? Does it call itself Ozymandias? Does it call itself Necroblabble? Or does it call itself Dave? You know, <laughs> we were kind of taking the piss of it. Uh, right. And a lot, a, we did a lot of humorous kind of like taking the mickey out of our out of occultism in, in pagan news. Uh, but as I say, it was something we did for two years together. And then I carried it on for about two years myself intermittently. Um, we have we have the amazing piece of luck that the UK's satanic panic mm, okay. uh, started just as we were starting to publish, so that gave us something to, to write about. Virtually every issue 
you know, we, we covered the whole satanic panic from its inception in 1988 to its, its demise in about 1992. Uh -huh. um, and that forms a, a large part of the book is I've, I've done a massive essay on, on like a review um, of how, how that whole situation progressed. Um, but we're, you know, we're, that, that is a book that's in progress now. So, you know, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll probably find me, you know, when it gets closer to publication, I'll be announcing it on Twitter, Facebook, and on my blog. So okay, that's that. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of years ago, I did a, a series of, if you like, booklets, um, examining the, if you like, the historical passage of ideas about chakras from mm -hmm. India uh, to the West. So, and there's, there's four of these, and they're only available as hard copy at the moment from Treadwell's Bookshop. Oh, the, the first one is a kind of like an introduction and a very brief look at some classical ideas, Indian ideas about ch uh, chakras, mostly from within the tantric tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, the second book is a look at how um, early theosophy um, early theosophical writers, both Indian and European, mm -hmm. got hold of the ideas of, uh, of chakras in the late 19th century and started to mutate them based on their, um, if you like, misunderstanding or misreadings of, of various Indian texts that were floating about. Um, the third one is a kind of look at Arthur Avalon, who's, okay. who's Serpent Powers, very influential, and Charles Webster Ledbetter, a theosophist whose book the chakras a monograph equally influential text um and the last book looks at young and other psychologizers of chakras oh, okay. so what the four books do is 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 kind of like try and trace the historical development of ideas of, of chakras from the classical indian tradition to um say the 1930s and oh. those four books are, are available from treadwells um, you, you can find those online, on, or do you have to go physically? No, uh, do you, you have to order them from Treadwells at the moment. I'm, tr I'm looking into doing electronic versions, but I think it won't be for a while. Okay, okay. Yeah, those sound very interesting. I'd love to... Uh, to uh, I, can, I, can, I can send you the links after, after the meeting, after the podcast, if you like. You can... Oh, definitely, definitely. I'll check that out and have that in uh, show notes. Um, uh -huh. Jason Miller re reviewed the first three on my blog very kindly which was he, he gave the, the he, i sent him pdf versions of the first three and he gave them a very nice review oh very nice very nice yeah um okay so you have uh those things out are there any other projects or seminars um, or any other things that you're uh any other business not really at the moment uh treadwells came up with this idea um a couple of years ago during the, the first lockdown uh, of having subscriber-only lectures. Mm. So the idea is you, you, you sign up, uh, I forget how much it is, but you have access to kind of like recorded lectures. And I did several lectures for them, uh, including three um, quite in-depth lectures looking at the, the, early, um, the, the early formation of tantric ideas. Mm, okay. Okay. But that'd be, that'd be behind a, uh, if you like, behind a paid for firewall. So um, anybody oh. wants to, to get hold of those is going to have to, you know, sign up for the Treadwell's membership lecture. But they've got a large uh, body of very interesting lectures. So I would recommend that as well. Again, I can send you the link. 
Oh, definitely. Yeah. I'll include, uh, I'll include all this in the show notes. I'm sure a lot of people will be interested, uh, to, you know, I, I, I do hope to be doing more open lectures this year, mm-hmm. but, uh, I have to get this book that Rodney and I are working on, uh, off to the publishers fairly soon. So that's pretty much taken up most of my time so far this year. Okay. Uh, but I, I hope to get back into doing, uh, lectures and maybe even I might, you know, try and dip my finger in the whole Zoom workshop thing, which I so far have not managed to do. Okay, okay. So, yeah. you know, for, uh, follow me on Twitter. I spend very little time on Facebook these days. <laughs> um, so, you know, if, if that's, the best way to, that's the best way to find me is, is on Twitter, um, where I tend to put up my new uh, blog posts. Uh, I'm doing a series at the moment on pan and um mm. pan's appearance in in various um forms of literature mm-hmm. so i've done a huge blog post on on pan in the early writing of hp lovecraft for example okay so so these um i, I guess because I, I sort of backtracked and asked you about your western practices and interests. Yeah. So, so the uh you're talking about pan and you have a blog series on this um it, it does do those do the traditions still interest you i guess more on an academic or historical level rather than on the practical level then? Um, well, this, this, this idea for this project, which I'd started about, I think about 10 years ago and then, you know, dropped, uh, cause I, I tend to not have much of an attention span. And I, th- I think the nice thing about writing as a blog, writing on a blog rather than trying to write a lot of books is that I can write about whatever interests me at one time. So, and I tend to zoom around in different directions. But what started this idea was um, somebody sent me this book on pan to review. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, lots of pan rituals and lots of about pan in ancient times. And it kind of that jump from pan in those, you know, in the midst of ancient times and then jump to the kind of like modern day contemporary uh, pagan practice with pan and i just thought hang on you know what about all the writers writing about pan in the 19th century you know what about the pan school of art mm. what about the enthusiasm for um classics that we find in the 18th century you know i just thought there was a whole kind of like you know batch of stuff that people don't tend to look at so that, and that's what kind of got me interested in writing about pan and it's almost it is a kind of like a literary exercise because i'm I'm looking at various um, authors who I've read, like D.H. Lawrence or Lovecraft or um, Lord Dunsany, for example, and and kind of like writing about how they how they use pan in their writing. So mm-hmm. it, it is more of a literary, um, if you like, academic project than than anything else. Mm. I think on that note, I do have a question. Do you see? Um, cause you were talking a lot of, earlier about, uh, you know, the deities in the Tantra Hindu tradition. Um, one thing that's always interesting to me, you know, you have people who, you know, that maybe they drop correspondences or they see similarities. Do you think ultimately all the cultures, uh, are the, are these the same deities we're talking about or with, you know, with their offices or do you see them as totally different and cultural specific? Um, do you see what um, I'm getting at there? Yeah, I do. Um, I'm, I tend to um, lean towards the cultures are different school mm-hmm. of thought, you know. Yeah, yeah, they're not the same. Uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, I, my, my background in, in social sciences was social constructionism. Mm-hmm. So, I, and I tend to be a bit of a social constructionist. 
mm. sort of soften, softened a, a great deal. But no, I tend to see that, the, you know, yeah, there, there may be commonalities, but back in the midst of time, you know, who cares? Now they're different. Mm. You know, we can find common resonances. Like I said, I was, you know, talking about um, tantric magical spells. They, they, they very much remind me of the, the stuff I've read in early modern grimoires. Yeah, mm. I do occasionally kind of like dip in that way. But mm. I think the cultural backgrounds are very different. Um, mm. Trying to give a good example. Um, okay. A couple of years ago, I got really interested in Indian classical ideas about beauty. Mm-hmm. Purely because in, in a lot of um, a lot of uh, dhyanas, which are, if you like, meditations on, on the, the form of one deity or another, you'll find this idea, oh, the deity is beautiful. Mm. And I started thinking about, okay, well, I'm kind of hypothesizing here that what we find beauty, what I find beautiful now in a, you know, 21st Western culture idea of beauty is going to be different from, say, 10th century Northern India. Hmm. So I started to look at classical Indian ideas of beauty, which again opened up a whole different world for me. You know, yeah, they are actually quite different. Hmm. And the same with with Indian ideas about the, the imagination. You know, sure. we, we kind of like take it for granted that we know how what the imagination is, at least in a vague theoretical way, and how it operates. Uh, Indian ideas about the imagination are sometimes quite different to ours. You know, we have, I kind of came out of this idea in, in, from a Western magical perspective that, oh, yeah, visualizing something, doing mm. a, if you like, what in Tantra you would call an internal ritual where everything is visualized, isn't as good as doing something externally, you know, mm. with, with all the props and ritual tools. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, and obviously these theories develop all the time and it depends which tradition, you know, whether you're reading Buddhist theory from the fourth century on imagination or something uh, from the 16th century. Obviously, you know, these ideas change historically, but there's a a very strong idea in a lot of classical Indian thought that um, imagination is better than reality. It's more real. (laughs) Hyper real, I think, was was a phrase that jumped out at me from one book. Mm. Um, And because there are are lots of stories of... um, adepts if you like who through their through their imagination imaginative power can change reality Mm, okay they they don't need external props they can they they think of in fact there's a really good example of that in in the yoga sutra Mm -hmm. in the yoga sutra you get you know the the yamas and the niyamas sure sure yes which are basically taken for the most part nowadays as preparatory practices Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's one of these uh, preliminary practices, which is about speaking the truth. Mm-hmm. And people just think, oh, that's just a, you know, that's just an, an ethical um, guideline. Situation. No, you don't lie. You, you speak the truth. It's an ethical statement. But if you read some of the, the very earliest commentaries on the, uh, on the Yoga Sutra, which have actually only been translated over the past 20 years, it actually says something like, well, if you speak the truth, then what you speak becomes true. Mm, okay. Now think about that from a magical perspective. That is really powerful. Mm, yeah, definitely. You know, what you sp- if you speak truth, 
then whatever you speak becomes truth. <laughs> I like no, that. You, you're, you are affecting your reality around you. Mm. So if you say, uh, you know, if you've, got a, if you've got a disciple and you say, oh, you know, you'll go to heaven, then that disciple will go to heaven. <laughs> yeah, that, so that's the logical you outcome, you know. Yeah, yeah. Sort of these instant, instantly manifesting these sort of realities through your yeah. tongue and your mind. Through and, your, yeah, and through your, through these practices. And again, if you look on my blog, you'll find a discussion about that. Oh, that sounds great. You have to check that out. I did yeah. forget to ask you this uh, listener question because I did okay. mention I would have you on, but maybe we can do this and then wrap up. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, I would love to hear Phil reflect on the present day of the state of political ritual, since it was, it was something that he was so involved in the UK pagan scene in the 80s. So um, sort of your reflections and thoughts on political ritual. Okay. Well, yeah, I was I was a kind of champion of political ritual in the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, what started to happen around the middle of the 80s is, uh, I mean, in, in Britain, we had a, an extremely um, repressive conservative government run by Margaret Thatcher. Mm -hmm. uh, and basically, there was, a, there was a real sense that anybody who of an alternative lifestyle or sexuality was, was having the thumbscrews put on them mm -hmm. by the government, you know? Mm -hmm. it was, I mean, okay, there was the AIDS crisis, few years before that the whole satanic abuse thing um you know it was a an interesting period to be a pagan activist let's say um and i got involved in a in a networking movement called pagan link and and the the people who were kind of like the, the main activists in pagan link were really behind this idea of, of that if you're a pagan you're taking up a political stance mm. You know, to be a to, to say you're a pagan in this in this modern day world is a political stance. Mm -hmm. And you know, if we want the kind of society that we dream about as pagans, whatever shape that might be, whether it's a you know women who look like vaguely like Queen Guinevere walking through the the weeds in dresses or whatever, you know, we should we should actually use magic to enchant for that. Mm. Um, so people got into the idea of doing mass rituals or let's say politically focused rituals uh, trying to, I think one, one thing we did was we tried to attack a company by lowering its share prices. <laughs> Didn't actually work, but it was an interesting idea, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, you know, nowadays that idea is a lot more prevalent, particularly in the States uh, where people have been doing rituals to get Trump out of the white house, but mm. you know, also in, in the UK, uh, probably all over the world. And sure. to my, I would say I haven't kept up with a lot of it, but I'm glad to see that those ideas have, you know, um, taken shape and been developed. Oh, definitely. I think there's because, a big... because in the 80s, it was it was a few activist pagans and some, if, if you can, like surrealist activists who were going out, out and doing street rituals and then getting arrested for it. Uh, so I'm I'm really glad to see that those ideas are now taking root and people are doing more experiments. Oh, definitely. Um, but I mean, I think there's there's a lost dimension about this. I mean, I I, I read something not long ago about a bunch of uh, queer activists in in the '60s doing pretty much the same same thing in America. Mm. So that you know that. Um, 
with a lot of uh, American magical activism, I think it's been going on for a, a lot longer than a lot of us suspect. And mm. in the 80s in Britain, a lot of it started with, with Greenham Common, with the protests against the American air bases. Oh. Um, and I think that's sometimes a, an aspect of, of modern paganism that has tended to drop under people's radar because what people see is the la 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 stuff <laughs> and they don't realize that actually there's, there's a hardcore of people who are going out and trying to make the world better through magical means so sure. I'm, I'm really glad that those ideas are, are now taking shape and more people are kind of like saying hey look you know let's let's have a go at this regardless of whether it's successful or not because right. for me the, the success of that kind of working is almost beside the point What's mm. important, if you like, is is how that makes you feel um, like you have some control over of your life circumstances. You know, you have some agency, and if you do it in a group, then that can generate um, a tremendous amount of enthusiasm, which can be directed into other projects. So, you know, be, be, before I, I started doing this pagan magazine with Rodney Orpheus, I've been in a, involved in a, in a mass ritual exercise. And for me, the important part of that ritual was just running around my locality, talking to other magicians, many of whom I'd never met before. I said, look, we've got this idea for this ritual. We want to do this. Are you in? And they'd go, yeah. And it was just that kind of like enthusiastic feedback that gave me a hell of a lift and made me feel I could actually, you know, make, a, make some changes in my world. Which oh, I yeah. then went on to do, you know, and that for me is actually more important than, than whether or not the thing works in that very kind of like utilitarian way or not. You know, it's the emotional intensity. Sure, the effect it has on your uh, your state on your of everyday being. life. Yeah, your, yeah, your, your life. state of being. You, if you're feeling that you can actually make a change, no matter how small in the world, that seems to be a, a core proposition of magic for me. Regardless of whether the thing actually, you know, manifests the result or not, that's that's almost of secondary interest, I think. Sure, sure. Rather than living in some sort of state of apathy and the sort of dull existence, it, yeah. it brings a little bit of um, grounds a little bit of uh, enthusiasm and vitality into one's being. Yeah, mm -hmm. very much so. And I think it also forces you to um, try and think hard about what kind of change you want to make mm, that's a good point too most yeah. definitely okay. okay i think i think that's about it isn't it yeah i think we covered uh, all the bases is, is there any uh, parting notes or anything else you want to mention um not really uh, i think we've, i think that we've we've covered everything we need to talk about okay i'd be happy to come on again okay definitely yeah in the future yeah definitely especially uh, I, I love talking about myself i mean what magicians do <laughs> Right, right, right. I remember uh, learning in some sort of psychology class. It, it's like, what's the way to uh, get people to like you? You know, everyone wants to convince people to like them, right? And yeah. uh, they said, yeah, just get them to talk about themselves and what they like, right? And <laughs> then everyone's yeah. going to like you. <laughs> because, yeah, that's a, that's one of those uh, fundamental sort of social uh, hacks. Oh, that, that has, to, to just carry that on, I mean, that was actually a really important thing for me. Mm -hmm. Because, the, you know, I mentioned I was in a witch coven. Mm -hmm. They were really secretive yeah. about being a witch. Yeah. Again, this is like, you know, early 80s Britain. But like, you you know, I couldn't tell anybody that I was a witch. If somebody came there, one of their things was, if somebody comes up to your party and starts talking about the occult, you're to deny all knowledge. Mm, okay. And that, you know, I really kind of like 
started to hate that eventually. And when <laughs> I broke away from that group and started talking to people, just things just became a lot easier, you know. And I discovered I actually enjoyed, you know, uh, getting up and giving lectures or, you know, just basically blathering about whatever is in my head at the moment. You know, that's, I think that is a really important thing. Right. Not, not living in the closet, so to speak, but being out there. Yeah, in the yeah. You yeah, know, I mean, yeah, that whole no dare will keep silent is okay as far as it goes, but you know, no dare will and spread it around a bit, you know. <laughs> yeah, share and bring breaking your oath of initiation, of course. <laughs> <laughs>